Greetings, everyone. Uh, this Welcome to episode 5 of Canadian Meets the South. Today, I'll be reviewing um, John C. Calhoun, uh, An American Portrait, by Margaret L. Coit. This is, um, obviously, <laughs> about John C. Calhoun, and goes through his entire life uh, from um, um, whom he was born to, um, his father, Patrick Calhoun, um, in 1782, um, to his death um, in 1850. And if you're if you know anything about the South, um, you know that that um, the most important Southerner before the the war would probably be John C. Calhoun, and he's known for um, states' rights, and for um, he's probably the most important vice president who never became president. Um, the, so the book goes through many, many details across his life. And I'll just say what comes to mind. Um, so he was born during the war in 1782 to, to Patrick Calhoun and who, who was a, who had served in the South Carolina legislature. And we all know that um, Charleston is the, the capital of South Carolina, but um, John C. Calhoun's home, hometown was Abbeville. And he was never really considered an aristocrat by the South Carolina high class of of uh, Charleston. He, um, his his father is a, was of the anti federalist tradition. Um, like um, um, many of the anti federalists, they believe that the United States Constitution was taxation without representation and it would centralize power um and which is why they wanted they would rather just have kept the articles of confederation but um coit i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing her name right the, the author she says that Calhoun did not become a states' rights man because he was a Southerner. He became a states' rights man when he was in the North, when um, studying at Yale, and then later at the law school nearby. I, I don't remember the name. And because um, these, these uh, Northerners were strong states' rights men, and they had threatened secession multiple times, as everyone knows. They, um, when 
Calhoun was 20 at Yale. Um, Thomas Jefferson was the president of the United States. And as you know, uh, the Northerners threatened secession over, over Jefferson becoming president. In 1801, after defeating his running mate, Aaron Burr, then they threatened secession over the Louisiana Purchase, which Jefferson had signed. And they threatened secession over the embargo in 1807, which Jefferson had signed. Um, now, his, now Calhoun's first foray into politics would be um, as a state legislature later. Um, he, yeah, he would, for one term, he would, he would uh, do what his father had done, Patrick Calhoun, and serve in Charleston. And actually, in 1808, he had opposed the nomination of George Clinton uh, as the renomination of George Clinton, because as you know, in 1808, um, James Madison was was running to become the president, and he was keeping his, and the Republicans were going to keep George Clinton as the vice president uh, as a and he as he was he was Thomas Jefferson's second vice president and actually Calhoun was against Clinton but I'm I I must admit I don't know much about George Clinton other than he's from New York he was once the governor of New York I believe and he had in 1811, he had uh, uh, voted, uh, like, as, the, as a tiebreaker against the recharter of the First Bank of the United States. Well, which is, you know, uh, I mean, he would die later as Madison's vice president. But if he had, if he had voted for that, Madison might have signed the, the recharter of the First Bank of the United States. And what I found interesting is that it re this book had revealed that Henry Clay actually was against the First Bank of the United, of, of the United States, the, the recharter. But um, going back to Calhoun, after a term in the legislature, he would become one of the most prominent war hawks um, as you know, in, um, in 1810, he, when most of the men who were elected were all freshmen, essentially, to the Congress. Um, before I talk about his Warhawk days, um, this, uh, 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 this biography goes a lot into his relationship with um, Fluoride Calhoun. Um, he had lived with um, 
her and her mother. Um, her mother was a widow, Mrs. Colhoun, and uh, yeah, um, Floride and her brothers were cousins to John C. Calhoun, and uh, Calhoun had lived with them for several years and was like a, an older brother to Floride and her brothers. And it and the book um, get, uh, wonders, I guess it speculates whether Floride actually loved um, John C. Calhoun as a man um, or was there always, or if there was some distance between them, because well, one thing was um, she would always refer to him as Mr. Calhoun, even as his wife. And you, you'll see the, the, how the relationship uh, affects his, uh, his life later on. But Calhoun was a war hawk, was elected in 1810 as a war hawk. And, and along with Patrick, uh, sorry, Henry Clay. Uh, and Henry Clay became Speaker of the House and had signed Calhoun as, as um, uh, I believe, chairman of one of the one of the one of the committees, and he this would uh, this and during this time he uh, he would establish a strong rivalry with John Randolph of Roanoke, who was, at this time, and until his death, the most, I, I'd say, he was, he was the, the principled Southerner, leader of the Southerners. He was the leader of the Tertium Quids, or the old Republicans, in Congress, but he would lose his seat uh, Randolph would lose his seat in 1812 because he was against the war. Then he had talked about how part of this, the war was about conquering Canada and uh, how there, there might be slave revolts if the men in the South left to, to fight the war. And obviously the Northerners um, did not like the war either because they were trading with Great Britain. Um, but Calhoun and Clay really pushed for the war and Madison, uh, James Madison, who was the president at the time, uh, was initially reluctant to support the war, but he... He went along with it, and then the War of 1812 became known as Mr. Madison's War. And then, um, after the war, like, the, the war was, was really hard fought, but, um, Clay and Calhoun were 
at this time. It seemed to be ideologically in sync with each other. They were both, as Warhawks, they, they had also supported what Clay would call the American system, which is, you know, which comes really from Alexander Hamilton's American school, which consisted of three major things, high protective tariff, a central bank, and internal improvements, which were essentially corporate welfare for things like uh, railroads, bridges, canals, etc. And James Madison actually signs the Second Bank of the United States into law. And he also signs the, the Tariff of 1816, which would be a Pandora's box. John, John Randolph of Roanoke had predicted that the protectionism wouldn't stop with 1816. And Calhoun didn't, I guess he didn't realize this. But um, Calhoun's bonus bill, which was uh, an internal improvements bill, was actually vetoed by Madison the day before he left office. And Calhoun was pleading with Madison not to do it, but Madison had said, I don't find any power in the Constitution that allows for the central government to, do, to, do, to, uh, to have internal improvements. The Calhoun, uh, Madison was sympathetic to Calhoun's idea of internal improvements. He didn't think it was the worst idea ever, but it, he believed it was unconstitutional. Now, I'd say to Madison, what do you think the, central, the, the Bank of the United States was? Um, because that the internal improvements, his logic for internal improvements should carry over to the Central Bank of the United States. But um, uh, James Madison is known for being inconsistent. Sometimes he'd be closer to Jefferson, um, and other times he'd he'd take positions closer to Alexander Hamilton, with whom he wrote the Federalist Papers alongside uh, J. Hill. Oh, sorry, uh, John J. I'm I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of uh, of uh, the leader of the Maverick Party in Canada here, Jay, Jay Hill, but it was uh, John Jay. Um, and the, the thing that, um, uh, that was near the end of Calhoun's career, at least in, in the House of Representatives, was um, was voting for a pay raise because this really angered the the citizens of of the different states, and Calhoun um, justified it by saying that there are some pe- some guys who are really talented and they shouldn't be restricted from going to Congress just because they were. They couldn't afford it, or so that's why they needed a pay raise, and this was very arrogant of Calhoun. And um, I think Court points it out correctly that 
this wasn't exactly statesmanship. And there were some other unstatesman, unstatesman-like things that John C. Calhoun would do. But um, it didn't seem to matter. He, he had, Because afterwards, James Monroe would appoint him as Secretary of War. But he had, he had faced two opponents in his last election back in 1816, or his last election to the House of Representatives. But yeah, he had been appointed by James Monroe to, to the cabinet as Secretary of War. And this is, um, now you might think that this is not a big deal, but during the, the war, during the War of 1812, James Monroe had served as both the Secretary of War and the Secretary of State. So James James um, James Monroe um, had um, uh, had to find someone like there wasn't it wasn't he wasn't the immediate successor to the Secretary of War. He was someone else. Um, before, there was someone else between Monroe and Calhoun, but. And I, I don't remember the name, unfortunately, but Calhoun's job was to you know, rebuild the army Not because the, the army wasn't in good shape um, after the War of 1812. So he was, so James Monroe had, had that in mind for Calhoun like as a successor to secretary, as, as the, to, the, to the War Department. And um, he had a, Monroe had a good relationship with Calhoun, or uh, so it seems. And now the Federalists by this time were dying, but um, I'll say this. Um, one of uh, Calhoun's children had died young during his, his uh, days as Secretary of War, and Monroe and his daughter were trying to support, were, were supportive of him and fluoride during this time. Because, um, yeah, um, Calhoun had moved to Washington, D.C. I, I don't even know James Monroe's daughter's name, but she was mentioned there. And... Um, the, the, the issue with... Um, Andrew Jackson and the the Spanish Florida crisis was was mentioned. Andrew Jackson was really famous. Um, he for you know he he had fought in the Revolutionary War or the War for Independence, the American War for Independence, um, um, as a child, and but he but he is famous mostly for. Um, for the Battle of New Orleans um, during the war, which people say it would not be a United States of America had Jack Jackson lost the Battle of New Orleans. And but so Jackson was still in the military uh, during James Monroe's presidency. And he had said that he would he would conquer Spanish Florida within a matter of thirty days, 
and um, this is a, a really compl complicated subject because he was kind of acting with insubordination as in he because his uh, Andrew Jackson's as a general his direct superior was was Calhoun and Calhoun wasn't really that supportive of this nor was the president the president didn't exactly give Calhoun or Calhoun didn't give Andrew Jackson the orders to to conquer Florida but he did anyways and actually Calhoun had brought up in cabinet about that he was interested in investigating Andrew Jackson for for this for his antics at Florida but John Quincy Adams who was the the Secretary of State um, wasn't interested was supportive of this and he he said why don't we offer in, in cabinet he, he said why don't we offer to the Spanish king some money for for Florida because <laughs> it's either take our money or we'll just take it for take Florida for free so there, there wasn't really much that the Spanish king could do at this point but um and but William H Crawford was there and he he would use um Calhoun's desire to investigate Jackson as a, uh, as a wedge between them when Calhoun was pre oh, vice president and Andrew Jackson was president but it goes into um the election of 1824 how Calhoun initially wanted to be president and Coit said that if he had become president, um, the, the path to consolidation might still have gone. He, he might not have um, stopped the, the war in 1861. Had, uh, but we, we really don't know that. We, we don't know if things could have been different because um, the, the, how do I say this? The nullification crisis wouldn't have happened. But I'll I'll get into that after I talk about John Quincy Adams and well and the election because he he realized he he couldn't win. Uh, Calhoun realized he couldn't win, so he settled for vice president. And he had he had there there were four other guys running. Henry Clay, um, who was the Speaker of the House, he was still he was still in the House of Representatives. Um, there was. Um, John Quincy Adams, Secretary of State. There was the Secretary of Treasury, William H. Crawford. There was, and and then there was Andrew Jackson, the, the General Andrew Jackson, the hero of New Orleans. And, <laughs> and John Quincy Adams had remarked that he was tell that Calhoun was telling people. His, uh, that was telling the supporters of John Quincy Adams in the Northeast that he was, that Calhoun was for Adams and telling people in the South and the West that he was for Andrew Jackson. And, and that's why he had, Calhoun won the uh, vice presidency in the landslide in 1824. But 
it went, but the presidency went, the, the, the election of, to, to the presidency went to the House of Representatives and it was a close election. There was this revolutionary war general who had served, who was serving as a member in the House of Representatives. And New York was the, was the deciding vote. And the New York delegation was split between Adams and Jackson. And this, um, this old general, he usually took orders from his wife, but, um, Clay, um, but his wife hadn't tell him, told him how to vote for this one. And Clay, as Speaker of the House, he, he had, he had, uh, written a piece of paper and then given it to, to, uh, the general, like in the House of Representatives. <laughs> his name said Adams. Uh, the the paper's name said Adams, and the general said, "Oh, forgive me, God, for what I'm gonna do." Because he didn't know who to vote for, so he just saw what Henry Clay had written and voted for Adams. Now Henry Clay was fourth, so he was no longer in the race because it was the House of Representatives had the top three people: um, Jackson, Adams, and Crawford. And, um, so, uh, Jackson's supporters were, um, infuriated by this. Oh, and there was, um, there's also this Congressional Caucus, but before the 1824 election that the Congressional Caucus had, uh, supported, um, William H. Crawford. And actually they kind of did in 1816 against Monroe. So, but um, there were some shenanigans in which Monroe was somehow able to get it, get the um, the president, uh, the the nomination, the Republican nomination, and Crawford had felt cheated, so he thought it was his turn in eighteen twenty four, but um, yeah, he didn't get that either. But he he so he became sick during eighteen twenty four, so this uh, really hurt his chances at becoming president. But uh, Martin Van Buren did still did support him, and Ma Martin Van Buren was in the Congress at the time. Now, um, but um, Adams would um, become president because of this, and Andrew Jackson's supporters decried this, this um, that um, Henry Clay's support of of Adams in the in the election in the house um and later becoming secretary of state which as you know jefferson madison and monroe were secretary of states before they became the presidents the, this uh this this relationship between adams and clay was known as the corrupt bargain well this is what andrew jackson's supporters would say because uh andrew jackson had the most in the electoral college, as well as the popular vote, he was a really, he was a populist. He was really popular with the common man, apparently, even though he was a rich slave owner. But um, he he had condemned this as the uh, um, and Calhoun would um, express his uh, concern about this quote unquote corrupt bargain. But um, 
he yeah he was the vice president and in 1827 i he had he had he was the tie-breaking vote against the wool tariff i remember reading like some time ago um strom thurmond in 1957 yeah, oh, oh sorry 57 53 no it's probably 57 in which um Around this time, a committee led by Senator John F. Kennedy had designated five of the most important senators, and one of them was John C. Calhoun. And, you know, Strom Thurmond, being from South Carolina, obviously was delighted that Calhoun was considered one of the great, was considered by, like, the modern Senate to be one of the greatest senators to ever live. And he had written about how he had voted against the wool tariff and but um yeah that's just an aside um Strom Thurmond of course really loved John C. Calhoun but um we maybe can talk about Calhoun uh Thurmond later on in this podcast um but so a tie was actually arranged in 1812 27 but it was not but there was no type for for Calhoun to break in um 1828 and um which was you know when the tariff of abominations was passed actually Martin Van Buren had shepherded the tariff of abominations in the congress and this was the tariff of abominations was meant like there were people who weren't protectionists at all, but they wanted to destroy John Quincy Adams, and so that to make way for for Andrew Jackson, and yeah, Calhoun could could not. Uh, there was no tie um, that was arranged in the Senate, so it went straight after the Senate. It went straight to John Quincy Adams, who signed it, and. Um, he became hated in the South, and this propelled Andrew Jackson to the presidency. Um, well, who who ran with Calhoun, and they were friends. But there were three things during Jackson's first term that really turned that really turned their relationship down, um, really bad. One was the petticoat affair. Um, uh, uh, this uh, Peggy Eaton, who was the the wife of the Secretary of War John Eaton, who was Andrew Jackson's friend, was being ostracized by the rest of the cabinet wives, led by Floride Calhoun. And this is Floride Calhoun is known for people credit, uh, historians credit her for destroying um, her husband's chance chances at becoming president, because Andrew Jackson had told. Calhoun, John C. Calhoun to to make his wife stop treating Peggy Eaton as um um as an outsider, but um and Calhoun said I can't do that. that that's something I I learned about Calhoun during this while well, listening to this book. Um, Calhoun really um was more wasn't that much of a sexist, I guess. He really respected women. And he let 
his wife fluoride do most of the raising of, of the children most of the rearing of the children and he wouldn't he wouldn't object to anything she do and also like he wouldn't he he didn't want to ruin his relationship with his mother-in-law either and um he would later his deepest relationship would be with his daughter Anna Maria, who would marry Clemson, and as you, you know, um, I think there's this university called Clemson University in South Carolina. Um, and his relationship with Anna Maria was um was really was the his deepest relationship ever because he would talk a lot about politics with Anna Maria. But um, going back to the 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 petticoat affair, um, this uh, this is one of the things that helped destroy his relationship with Jackson because Jackson uh, uh, during the war of eighteen no during the election of eighteen twenty four his wife had died and um, Jackson's wife uh, uh, Peggy O'Neill was comforting him when after his wife had died and it was said that Martin Van Buren was the puppet pulling behind the strings behind Peggy O'Neill but um, because during the nullification crisis um, Martin Van Buren had suggested that the cabinet resign and and then all of the cabinet resigned like he 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 and Secretary Eden would resign, like, uh, I think Van Buren was the Secretary of State, I, I don't remember at this time, but he would, they would all resign over this thing, because work wasn't getting done because of this crisis, and then Jackson would appoint everyone, new people, um, and in 1832, well, well, before, okay, before I talk about that, before I talk about it in 1832, in 1830, Crawford decides to put the wedge between Jackson and Calhoun by talking about giving cabinet secrets about how he would say, kind of erroneously, that Calhoun called for Jackson's arrest during the Florida affair. And this technically was not true because he, Calhoun only called for the investigation. But the problem is, um, I guess, I mean, the, um, the, how could not, an investigation can lead to an arrest? And Crawford was saying he was calling for an arrest, which wasn't, yeah, it wasn't technically true, but the damage had been done. And Jackson, um, oh, Calhoun had written to Jackson after, after this, that he, this was bad of Crawford. Well, I don't, I don't know if about this one, but. This was bad of Crawford to give cabinet secrets and that he he was completely innocent of whatever Crawford was accusing him of, which was true. But if he didn't, and but this, this really destroyed his relationship and he didn't go into the nuance of how he called for, I mean, if he had called, if he had said, if he'd gone through the nuance of he had called for an investigation, not an arrest, that I think that would still have really been bad. So he just kept, so he, he wrote eight pages of why he was innocent. And Andrew Jackson's like, said, there's, 
there's no way an innocent man is going to write eight pages on why he's innocent to prove why he's innocent. There's just no way that's going to happen. So, but the the finals and they they were friends. Jackson had had said that Calhoun felt betrayed by that that he had been he had felt betrayed by Calhoun for for this. But uh, Calhoun had condemned Crawford for 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 exposing cabinet secrets. They should, which yeah, I mean, but Crawford had nothing to lose at this point. He had wanted Martin Van Buren to become president. Um, but to pay back Martin Van Buren for his loyalty to him. But um, the the final straw that broke the the camel's back was was in January eighteen thirty two, where he Jack, Jackson had appointed. Martin Van Buren as the minister to England and a tie was arranged and Jackson uh, Calhoun had had voted against um, Martin Van Buren and he had believed he had killed Martin Van Buren's career but um, actually this elevated him to the vice, vice presidency essentially this was one of the big mistakes that Calhoun made. Calhoun has I think 31 tie-breaking votes, the most of any vice president of the United States. And this was, I think, this he would come to regret this decision. And then, of course, how can I not talk about the nullification crisis? At this, I mean, at, at this time, um, after um, South Carolina in 1830, okay, how should I say this? So, Andrew Jackson signs a tariff decrease, but it wasn't that this decrease wasn't enough for South Carolina. So they had so they had came together in a convention and nullified the tariff of abominations of eighteen twenty eight, as well as the tariff of eighteen thirty two. And what's interesting, I didn't know this before before going through this book. Calhoun didn't believe that the state legislatures had the power to nullify on its own. Um, he believed that a convention needed to be called. And this is very interesting because it doesn't seem like there are conventions nowadays in the modern era. If there's nullification, it's usually just the state legislature to do that. But Calhoun believed that the people of the state need to get needed to get involved in a, in a convention. It shouldn't be done just by the thing, but by the people. And before I go into the nullification crisis, there was, this was on, this was like, it happened a little after uh, Robert, Hain, Robert C. Haynes' debate with Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster was, initial, was initially from New Hampshire, right? But he had moved to, he had moved to Massachusetts after after the um, um, the the vote to to increase the people's pay, no, the 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 representatives' pay in Congress, and this time Calhoun, oh, people say that um, Coit, uh, Coit had said that historians like to generalize Calhoun's thing, Calhoun's career as into two parts. First, 
as a nationalist and then later on as a sectionalist. But um, he's but Cal Coit says this is more complicated than that. He Calhoun was always a union man. We wanted what was best for the whole of the union. Um, meanwhile, Daniel Webster, he, he it seems that he's Daniel Webster is the foil to John C. Calhoun. He would go from states states rights man to consolidationist within within the matter of less than two decades because he was a states rights man during the war of 1812 and then by 1830 in his debate against Robert Hayne he is a consolidationist and he says um, that he propounds the the one people myth of the United States and that the Constitution is a compact between the federal the, this, the central authority and the people, but that's that's obviously not true. It's a compact between the states, and uh, also I guess like um because we all know the 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 great triumvirate, Calhoun, Webster, Clay, and then there was Thomas Hart Benton who also who was just underneath them. He wasn't a lawyer like the three of them that were, but he he was all he was a southerner, was one he would. He would rival them for from eighteen twenty to to eighteen fifty, but uh, I, yeah, I didn't really. Thomas Hart Benton is mentioned a lot. He actually had a duel with Andrew Jackson, but they reconciled later. But um, which is, I guess, the opposite of Calhoun. But in Robert C. Hayne believed in eighteen thirty, eighteen thirty one that. The Democratic Party under Andrew Jackson would um, support the doctrine of nullification, and in the which is what Thomas Jefferson did. In, he wrote in the Kentucky Resolutions, but um, um, in the 1831 you know, Jefferson dinner, which would later become the Jefferson and Jackson dinner, that the Democrats would always have. Um, Andrew Jackson. Has the toast. He says, um, "Our union it must be preserved." And he it's This is a direct challenge to John C. Calhoun. He looks Jackson. He uh, they looked into each other's eyes and Jack and sorry Calhoun gives the second toast and he says, "The union next to our liberties most dear." So when Jackson said this. It's clear. It was clear that he would not. He would not uh, support the doctrine of nullification that Robert C. Hayne, the, the, the South Carolinian, supported, and um, he believed he because Jackson believed in the nationalist myth of America that the United States was one was one nation. Not he did not believe it was a league like. John Taylor of Caroline did, and later John C. Calhoun. John, like I'm, I'm, bring, I'm just bringing up John Taylor of Caroline, but um, because he was the most, he was considered more Jeffersonian than Jefferson, and he had denied that Andrew Jack, no, sorry, that the United States was a nation. He called it. He called the idea of the one people myth a. Utopia for utopians. It just didn't exist. The idea of one American people just didn't exist. And 
Um, Calhoun wasn't an old Republican like John Taylor of Caroline. He was, he kind of, and like the old Republicans that believed that he wasn't principled as a principle, wasn't a principled states' rights man. He was an opportunist. Um, and maybe there, maybe there is some truth to that, but um, because that's that was exactly how John Randolph of Roanoke, who was a who was also an old Republican, saw of Calhoun, but um, afterwards, after South Carolina had nullified the tariff of 1832 and the tariff of abominations, Andrew Jackson was in a fit of rage and he had asked Congress to give him the power to use mil the military to to forcibly collect the tariff. No, that's the Force Bill in 1833, and while while, while Calhoun after after Calhoun had resigned from the vice presidency to replace Robert C. Hain, Robert C. Hain would become the the governor, replacing James Hamilton in South Carolina. While, um, yeah, to to make room for John C. Calhoun was was a much more talented uh, speaker, and Cal yeah, and then Calhoun would later engage in debate with with his with Daniel Webster who who he who was he was friends with and he was friends with Clay still too. Clay was still being a consolidationist, but he was a southerner. And they had Clay had written the help write the compromise tariff bill. But um during the force bill, the passage of the force bill, Calhoun wouldn't um uh Calhoun actually abstained like he I mean they didn't like he just walked out of the chamber along with the rest of the Southern delegation, except for John Tyler. Well yeah, Henry Clay also left the chamber. He Coit said bad air. Because he um but yeah, um the only senator to vote against that was John Tyler, whom well we'll all mention later when he becomes president. But uh uh yeah, Clay would later um, agree with, uh, would work with Calhoun on the compromise bill, and Clay had said that if he, if later would use this in the debate against Calhoun, saying if I hadn't written this compromise, you you wouldn't even be here. Your political career would be dead. And yeah, going but going to the Senate in eighteen thirty two, Calhoun Calhoun thought that he might. He might literally be arrested and hanged for for this. And there were some guys, there was at least one guy in the Senate who, who believed that Calhoun was a traitor who should be hanged for 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 expressing nullification. Um, the thing about the nullification crisis was <laughs> um, James Madison flip-flopped on this and he he had said that he and Jefferson never support nullification <laughs> until some guy shows Jefferson uh, shows shows Jefferson's handwriting to to Madison saying that he, yeah uh, actually Jefferson did support nullification, but I think Madison what Madison didn't like was Calhoun how Calhoun said one state nullifies for the entirety, while. 
Madison and Jefferson said the the unconstitutional federal law would not would just not be enforced in the states that chose to interpose or nullify. But <laughs> Calhoun's nullification was, I guess, a little bit different in the sense that he believes that one state could nullify for the for the whole union for the rest of the states. And but um, moving on, like he, what I found interesting was that he afterwards, like yeah, um, he he wouldn't go to the second inaugural in which of Jackson, which in which Van Buren became the president, uh, the vice president, and then, but he, and yeah, he became bitter rivals with with Jackson and Van Buren, and although they he now agreed with them on on opposition to the central bank and but in 1840 he had actually thrown south carolina to van buren because he never i joined the Whigs, and he said he initially said i'm not part of either two parties but people say like later on he became uh, um years after the founding of the Whig party he would become the leader of most of the Southern Democrats. Um, and so he had, people were, Henry Clay was angry that he would even throw South Carolina to Martin Van Buren in 1840. But that, that was because he was afraid of this coalition. Like the Whigs party seemed to be a coalition of big business, big Northern business and abolitionists. But um, William Henry Harrison was still, still, um, still wanted like I guess his friendship they um and he was he was still wanted to be on good terms with Calhoun and he had tapped Calhoun on the shoulder and wanted to shake his hand but like <laughs> um when during around the time of his inaugural um but Cal uh Harrison would die and Calhoun uh Tyler would become president and he had court had said Tyler seemed to be to at least to court to her Margaret court the the author she she said that Tyler seemed to be more of a principled man than Calhoun. Tyler had opposed the um the Compromise of eighteen twenty, which allowed for federal restrictions of slavery above the the border of Missouri. Um, above the southern border of Missouri, except for Missouri itself, and the entire cabinet had um. Had, 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 the entire Monroe cabinet had supported this, including Calhoun, although he was skeptical at first. But um, and and I think Adams had told him that he he was doing it. He was he was really skeptical because of morality. But but um, uh, Calhoun had said, "How were? I don't think the the founders would." would agree to this, like the, the drafters, like the, the founding generation. And I don't think that they're any less moral than we were, but he would, uh, hold on. And I would say, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I had to relocate. Um, John, so John Tyler was more principled than that because not just because of that. Not just because of the compromise of 1820, but he, yeah, he, 
he had voted against the Foist bill while Calhoun had walked away from it. And John Tyler as well as well um as John Randolph of Roanoke who who died not long after after the passage of the Foist bill, they both assured him <laughs> Calhoun that Virginia would have gone would have come to South Carolina's aid had um South had the Foist bill had uh, Andrew Jackson invaded South Carolina. Uh, Calhoun actually was debated heavily against the Foist Bill, saying it was the repeal of the United States Constitution. But, and and uh, South Carolina did nullify the Foist Bill, but I mean, it, the damage was done because 27 years later, 28 years later, Andrew Jackson, I mean, uh, Link, Abraham Lincoln would invade the South over tax collection, like he said in, in his inaugural in 1861. Now, um, Calhoun become, Calhoun, um, how do I say this? He, he had retired a little bit early, like, like, um, for a short period, like Clay during, during, uh, Tyler's administration. But, um, after, um, the Secretary of State Abel Upshur had died in an accident, um, along with, um, his, along with John Tyler's future wife's father-in-law, um, Tyler, Ty, like, Tyler's friends <laughs> really tap, tap Calhoun to become the, the, the vice, I mean, the, to become the Secretary of State, and he, and Calhoun accepts, and, although, to, Tyler didn't really, wasn't really looking forward to it because he had Calhoun initially rejected, rejected the Secretary of State position, but he went, and he went with it anyways, and he he had a good relationship with Julia Gardiner, the yeah, the who who was uh the thirty year who was who was twenty four and like Tyler was fifty four and they become married together after Gardiner's Julia's. Uh, father had died, and uh, uh, Gardner Ju Ju Julia Gardner had a good relationship with with uh, Calhoun, and because like there were some people that say that were saying Tyler was um, not that Gardner was only marrying Tyler because he was the president of the United States, but um. Calhoun still gave offered her friendship and would stand by her. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and so the issue with um, the issues that were facing uh, Calhoun as Secretary of State were Texas annexation and Oregon annexation. Now Texas, he his um, his treaty was initially rejected, like to annex Texas, but then after. After the um, the election of eighteen forty four, in which Polk campaigns on being um, campaigns on or defeats Van Buren, like uh, in the, I mean the Democratic convention, and campaigns on uh, annexing Texas, because um, uh, um, while 
Clay. He told the North that he was against annexation, while he told the Southern Southerners that he was for annexation. I mean, that was his. He was doomed to lose because of that. So after the election, um, uh, the Texas was annexed by joint resolution because a treaty, the treaty that Calhoun needed, was needed two thirds in the Senate, but uh, that wasn't. But he wasn't able to get that. So Calhoun proposed the joint joint resolution, which only needed a fifty percent plus one majority in both of the houses, and Daniel Webster had said that this wasn't unconstitutional. He believed he believed this was constitutional, but he said, "Be careful, because when if you use this to joint joint resolution to, by to annex too much, then um, th then one day maybe all of Canada would be." Joint would be would be annexed by joint resolution, and because uh, uh, Webster said that there were two ways, the Constitution did not specify which way, how on which to annex a, annex territory or a state, and case and it said it could be either joint resolution or treaty, and so. This was constitutional. And Polk was, later Polk would be angry with Calhoun about how he had robbed him of the glory of and of Texas annexation. But what I liked about Calhoun was that he he still supported um, the, he still supported Oregon um, in the State Department as he it was a, even though it was a free state, and he said, but during secretaries, as his, his secretary of state, like, when trying to annex Texas, he said to the world that it was to preserve the institution of slavery. And Andrew Jackson was initially, like, before, before he said, that, said this, Andrew Jackson was glad that his old rival was agreed with him on Texas, but then when he brought up slavery... Jackson said that he was being a traitor because this would just, this talk of slavery would dissolve the union, obviously. But Polk, um, now he didn't get a war with England over Oregon, but he did have the war with Mexico because he had he had sent Zachary Taylor to the Rio past the Rio Grande, I think, which wasn't supposed to be American territory, and then. Zachary Taylor's, some of Zachary Taylor's men died. General Zachary Taylor. And he said, okay, American blood has been shed on American soil. Which is, he was copying what, like in 1810, what James Madison had said during, um, like when he, he had sent sent troops to uh, the American, uh, to, to the Republic of West Florida. Like, uh, over, so this is like 1810. Um... Uh, I have the details wrong, I'm sure, but yeah, um, and Calhoun, see, the thing about Calhoun is he was trying to preserve his rights as the, the Southern rights, right, because he didn't want any slavery, any interference with slavery, and then, well, Polk was, even though he was a Southerner, he said to Calhoun, I'm not going to... I'm the president of the United States, not of the South. 
I um and I'm gonna do what's best for and I'm okay. So Cal um Hulk hated Calhoun. He expressed his hatred for Calhoun, saying that all Calhoun wanted to do was be president and he would do it. He would d dissolve the union um by the tariff or by slavery. And um Man, I've I've missed a lot of details. It's been an hour, but that's okay. Um, then Zachary Taylor becomes president, but in eighteen forty-eight, and he does doesn't really go into the relationship with Zachary Taylor and Miller Fillmore, with like their relationships with Calhoun. But by this time, around this time, this is there. There were, first there was the before this there was the Wilmot proviso by David Wilmot, a Pennsylvania Democrat who would later become a Republican, and which which said that all the, the territory in the conquered in the Mexican War would become free free territory and obviously this is not true. Um, the issue of the slavery in the territories I think I've mentioned this before. This is about political power. Who are the the territories going to align with? Like because the territories would were not states yet. So constitutionally, the federal government they were under the control of the federal government, right? But the federal government does not have the power to infringe on any type of property rights, which includes slavery. Um, so, this is um, this was a constitutional question as well as about political economy, whether you can restrict slavery in the territories, and all this would this would go all the way to eighteen fifty, in which Calhoun Calhoun predicted that the that this that the South would be destroyed and the Union and the South would be destroyed because of this question because Calhoun was firmly against any restrictions in the territories and he said yeah this this is unconstitutional um, and this brings up he brings up uh, Margaret Court brings up Jefferson Davis and Alexander H Stevens um, Alexander H Stevens actually expressed his skepticism. For the good of the union, in in the Georgia's constitutional convention to to secede, well, which is you know, over ten years after Calhoun dies, he actually support su supports staying in the union because he believes that the union would protect slavery because you know there was the Future of the Slave Act. But while Robert Toombs, Robert Toombs, they were both Whigs, Stevens and Whigs, Georgia Whigs, but. Robert Toombs actually was one of the ones who um, supported secession. But 11 years before, he was the leader, I think he was the leader of the Southern Whigs, and he mocked Calhoun, saying he is bringing, he is bringing up the slavery question because he wants to be president of the Southern Confederacy, which um, after, after Je Calhoun resigned from the vice presidency, that... That was certainly not true. Um, Calhoun knew his chances were over, but he would use he would use the fact that some people wanted him to be president to to, to get his voice out. Still after after his after eighteen thirty two. Um, but he it talks about um. Robert Barnwell Rhett a little bit um how Rhett like um this relationship or he had he had a relationship with Rhett. William Barnwell, Robert Barnwell, Rhett, as well as James Henry Hammond. <laughs> James Henry Hammond was only twenty-one when the tariff of null 
Abdication, uh, sorry, the Tariff of Abominations was passed, and William Barnwellgrat was around that age too, and uh, Robert Barnwellgrat, sorry, and Coit said that if if Calhoun had chosen Rhett to be his successor, was Rhett was was a nullifier. Well, uh, Jefferson Davis wasn't. Jefferson Davis from Mississippi wasn't. Uh, he said things might have been different because when Jefferson Davis becomes president, president of the Confederate States, even though Davis believed he was, even though he was against nullification, he still well, he was a states' rights man, but he was against nullification, which was actually, actually, um, John Randolph of Roanoke wasn't really a, a nullifier either, but he believed in secession. Um, I, I think I talked about this in my previous podcasts on Jefferson Davis and the rise and fall of the Confederate States. But Jefferson Davis wasn't a nullifier, and Coit point out the, pointed this this peculiarity out. How if Rhett, Rhett was a was a fire eating nullifier, and like the term fire eater was initially referred to Calhoun, but like it later became applied to the to the secessionists in South Carolina who some of whom hated Calhoun and they said why are you nullifying like why what's the point of nullification if you're what's the point of staying in the union if you're not going to follow the laws so yeah what is the point of nullification and I guess that's that's what that was Jefferson Davis's position but this would he would see this in his central in his centralizing tendencies as president of the confederate states he 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 rejected the idea of nullification. Uh, but yeah, if William if Robert Barnwell read who was who was one of the signatories of the Confederate Constitution, if he if he had been chosen by Calvin instead of Davis, maybe things would have been turned out differently. At least that's what, what Court said. But um yeah, um by the by the time of the the compromise of 1850 Calhoun was a was a dying man and his uh his friends Clay and, and Webster were were crying over him even though Clay and Webster supported the tariff of uh sorry the the compromise of 1850 because Clay had said no because he had said to Clay and Webster that the general government does not have the power to allow or disallow slavery into the ter- in, in the territories. Only the states have the, the states are the sovereigns. Only the states have the power to 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 regulate property rights, including slavery. Only the states can end slavery, not the central government. And but yeah, after they they cried over, both of them cried over. I'm pretty sure both of them cried over Calhoun. Calhoun's dying, and Anna Maria and wasn't in America at that time. I think she was in Europe, and yeah, she cried how she couldn't be with her father when he died. But um, I think his his son Andrew was with him, was with Calhoun, and Calhoun was really yeah he he died with being a prophet like Randolph. Randolph was a prophet about the tariff, and then Calhoun was saying, "Yeah, the the, the tariff 
Uh, the, not just the tariff, like the, the whole union is going to be, then the South will be devastated. And Calhoun was right, but he, uh, I don't know, but he, but yeah, he was mocked by, so weird, he was mocked by Robert Toombs for, for, um, for his opposition to centralization. And then 11 years later, over 11 years later, Robert, uh, Robert Toombs is, is supportive of secession for Georgia. Um, so what I found about this, I'll just talk gen, um, for, it's been a long podcast, but I'll talk more generally about this book. What I, what I found about this podcast is that it, it liked to talk about the difference between, um, a democracy and a Republican form of government. Um, and, and yeah, the last chapter talked about um the disquisition and the discourse on on government written pu- published after Calhoun had died he had written this during his dying years last this like last couple dying years and um how this is uh this is important political philosophy but um what I liked about the book in total is not just like the talking about the difference between the a democracy and a republican form of government but also it used a lot of nationalist language to describe america to describe the united states but um it made sure to bring up towards the end that calhoun denied that the united states was a nation like england or france it was the each state in 1776 was a nation equal to england and to France, the, each of the 13 states. This was Calhoun's belief. He denied that it was a nation. He called, well, not in this book, but um, I remember Marco Bassani saying that John C. Calhoun said that the United States was an assemblage of nations. Um, so yeah, even though the book used a lot of nationalist language, it made sure to point out that Calhoun did not believe that the United States was a nation. So I, I like, I really like that. Um, and although it did talk, it, it brought up, um, Abraham Lincoln a lot, but, um, it, he's, it, uh, quite said that if, if they had met together in the Senate or something that Calhoun would really respect, like, um, like his articulation, uh, Lincoln's articulation, like articulations against slavery or something. I, I don't know. Like I felt like Coit was trying to paint Lincoln in a, a little bit of a positive light. I'm like, I'm not sure if I like that. But um, yeah, this um, I'll say now. Well, like the last thing, last things like like I usually do about how Cal- Calhoun relates to Canada. So in Canada. Um, we have, we also have a federal system and, but, um, uh, it was because of the, the war in 18, in the 1860s, this really influenced the, the delegates to, to be more centralizing. And so the federal government has more power in, in Canada than the United States. At least that's how it's supposed to be. But 
no one questions the right to nullify or and, and certainly not to secede for each of the provinces because the because provinces they were not sovereign entities like the states are the american states the provinces were creatures of canada were established as creatures of canada well the federal government of the united states is is a creature of the states but um yeah um the the federal if the if the if the federal government example like i'll bring something today like justin trudeau would want a let's say justin trudeau's would want a would want vaccine passports right so if that would happen the the premier of alberta jason kenny whom i don't really like i i saw a tweet one day uh, of him condemning the confederate flag and what it stood for when there was a confederate flag in an alberta cemetery i'm like yeah um i tweeted him that he was a hypocrite because he's against the carbon tax he's against he's against he's fighting against a tax oppressive federal government and for his own for his for his own for his own autonomy like as premier right and but that's exactly what each of the confederate states were doing they were fighting for their own autonomy against an oppressive federal government, a tax oppressive federal government. So I'm not, I'm certainly not a fan of Jason Kenney. Um, but he said he was against vaccine passports. And I think um, Jason Kenney, Jason Kenney would, would, uh, would, you know, do interposition slash nullification, even though he is, Albertans, yeah, the the separatists in Alberta don't like him because he's a strong federalist. But I think Kenny would do his best to resist vaccine passports because he said himself that that this would. I think well, I, I don't remember this, but he said this would divide Canada. Or uh, he he there there is a clip of him responding to vaccine passports, and he he, he so at least I I like what he said about that. But um, yeah, Jason Jason Kenney's United Conservative government in Alberta would I'm sure they would nullify like um, a, a federal vaccine passport. Um, and many of the states, like I think there are, in America, there are at least twenty states that would nullify a, a federal vaccine passport because they had banned vaccine passports months ago. Several of them. Um, and but like the way. The vaccine passports are like um some some just banned the government government vaccine passports or while others like Montana, Florida, Alabama, they 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 also banned um private businesses from vaccine passports because what I liked about that is I, I do believe obviously I'm a free marketer. I believe in in the a government in the in business, not businesses generally not telling being told what to do. The problem is that the the the, fe, uh, the federal government is influencing these businesses. In the United States, the federal government is so big they they influence they they can influence local local businesses, small local businesses. So I believe yeah, that's important for for the state governments in America, like Alabama, Fl- Florida, Montana's, and hopefully some more to to not just be against government. Uh, their their state and local governments vaccine passports, but also like against 
for, uh, against businesses doing this because the, the businesses, are, whether we like it or not, are, are going to be strongly regulated by by the federal government. So they have to, I believe it's important for them to do this. And Ron DeSantis, the, the governor of Florida, he's really strong on this. And I remember reading something about how like the CDC, which is part of the federal government, was was in favor of the, like kind of 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 cruise lines want wanting people to be mostly vaccinated to be vaccinated before entering on a cruise and um Flor obviously the governor of Florida is strong against this and he said anyway what he says about vaccines he's like yeah I encourage people especially if you're really old to take the vaccine but but I would never force the the force vaccines and I would fight to, he would fight to the death to to prevent other governments be be it the local governments which are creatures of the state of Florida or the federal government which is a creature of the states to to enforce like vaccine passports so I really like the governor of Florida and um Maxine Bernie in the People's Party of Canada he likes Maxine Bernier is a, is a states' rights conservative here in Canada. And he really likes the governor of Florida because um, he says that he's against both government pa passports. Like he, he, had, he was asked in a... Uh, Maxine Bernier was asked in a Rebel News interview, what do you think about private businesses and vaccine passports? And he's, Maxine Bernier said they don't have the right to do that because... Um, that that's infringing on people's privacy rights, and he, that's why he he likes he would do what the governor of Florida did, which was not just ban the government from governments from vaccine passports, but also private businesses from vaccine passports. Um, but yeah, we need um the point of Calhoun is Calhoun's philosophy is power checking power. And in the disquisition of government, you can see that he he's a Jeffersonian to the core. Jefferson had written not just the not just the um, Kentucky resolutions of seventeen ninety eight and ninety nine, but also the Declaration of the Rights of British America in seventeen seventy four. He was in which Jefferson was. This is even before Calhoun was born. He was he was writing to. The king that the king must check the power of the parliament because it was really the parliament who was doing the taxation without representation, but nullification and or interposition, as James Madison would say, in um in the Virginia Resolutions or in Federalist Forty Six, uh, these don't these didn't start with Jefferson or Madison, they started they they, they were before they were they used in colonial times, for example, in like Massachusetts would be against this we we all know the famous Boston Tea Party and the, as well as the um in 1765 Henry Clay uh sorry sorry Patrick Henry's speech um if this be treason um be in his his this is the nullification of the stamp act but yeah um so Calhoun to me is very important like He's one of my favorite favorite men in history because he 
obviously believes in power, checking power. He believes in states' rights and and a very limited central authority. And he believed that. Um, one one last thing. He believed he he supported Michigan even uh, entering the union, even though he even though Michigan was a free state because and because he and he did not want any um any any conditions on on Michigan entering the union like there were for for Missouri in eighteen twenty. And in that speech in January five he also calls out Van Buren for even though calling even though Van Buren called himself a Democrat, he was literally appointed by by Andrew Jackson to be the next president and no, at least to be the nominee for the Democratic Convention. And like this was yeah, this demo, quote unquote democratic convention was a sham of democracy, according to Calhoun. Um, whom yeah, I mean later I mean he used the word democracy, but uh, as you know, like he discusses the difference between a democracy and a federal not in a in a republic. A federal republic, especially. But yeah, that's that's it for today. I, I pulled I'm I could have um sorry, um I I'll make I'll try to I'm not sure what what's gonna be my next podcast um fodder, but um I'll see. Th- thank you for listening to Canadian Meets the South and if you're watching on YouTube, uh <laughs> you might want to be hit subscribe. Because uh, I think I believe I have zero subscribers as of right now. But thank you for listening. If you're listening on Anchor.fm or if you're listening on YouTube. All right. This. Uh. See you.